Yes, this is something we love participating in every year. And so I would just want to encourage you to go ahead and grab, grab a baby bottle and, and fill that thing up uh, because you can have an impact. The Options Health Ministry in our area, uh, we, we've just been so glad to partner with them over the years. They've grown a lot. They've, they've become very um, winsome in the way they engage with people. They want to share Jesus uh, they want to care for moms as well as babies. They want to care for dads as well as babies. And, and they're very good at bringing forward the, the gospel in a very clear way. And so uh, please do take part in that. Uh, if you have kiddos, parents, you can have your kids involved in that. They can watch that change build up in the bottle. That's a beautiful way to be able to engage in, in uh, the beauty of what it means to stand for life, especially in this time. And, and so... Uh, we want to really encourage you to, to do that. There's something else that's happening um, right now, uh, this month. And you might be familiar with it. You might not be familiar with it. But Nancy Sanders, as we've mentioned before, uh, is retiring. You're going, who is Nancy Sanders if you're new? Well, she's been serving as an administrative or an executive assistant at our church for, we're debating with whether it's 18 years or 19 years. A really long time. Okay, it's right in that place. And we want to say thank you to her. And so at the congregational meeting, at the conclusion of that, at the end of the month, we're going to just take some time to say thank you to Nancy. But in the meantime, we realize, too, there might be ways you might want to write a note to her or, or to just, just encourage her in some way. There's a, a box in the back on the counter. And uh, it might, does it say Nancy on it? It even says Nancy on it, okay? Super clear. Thank you for that. So... Go ahead and you know, over the next couple weeks, if you'd like to put a gift in there or a, a card of encouragement for Nancy, please do so. We are so thankful for her and the ways that God's used her uh, in the life of our church. So um, take advantage of that and we'll look forward to celebrating together at the end of the month after the congregational meeting. So uh, the, the, the word love is used a lot. And, and of course it comes up a lot in the Bible. And we've talked before about this if you've been with us at all over the past couple of years, uh, a lot of times the word love is used in a very trite way, in a very flat way, in a way that doesn't really reflect the depths of what God means by it. And uh, I was even thinking back to, uh, you know, there's a classic movie called Top Gun. Maybe you've heard of it, you know? And of course, there's been a newer movie that's come out, which, by the way, is also well, well done, faithful to the first one. But there's that, that part where, you know, uh, Goose is singing that song, and what's the song? You've lost what? That love and feeling, right? And there it is, right there. Love and feeling. You've lost it. It's gone, meaning it's over. And, and so there's been, you know, a sense in which love has kind of become that, where it's sort of like, well, you can fall in love and out of love. And it all depends on the, the number of butterflies in your stomach at the time that you think of the person. And it's sort of, you know, that's just not really what love is. But we've also responded to that, I think, in uh, very much in kind of our circles and saying, that's right, so love isn't a feeling. Love is a decision. And so here we are, you know, it's just sort of this cold-hearted decision. Is there any feelings? Who cares? I don't know. I'm deciding to love you. You know, and, and it's, kind of, it kind of, it's kind of back to that whole thing, you know, when you've got the little kids, maybe you know, they're siblings in front of each other, and it's sort of like, you know, okay, you need to say, I forgive you. And the little person's like, I forgive you. It's like, yeah, I don't, I don't think you're there yet. Okay, tell him you love him. I love you. You know, that's just not it. So, so I think we can respond to this kind of flat, plastic, foofy notion of love all the way over here and it just becomes this empty-hearted kind of rigorous obligation without any heart behind it at all. And thankfully, the Bible doesn't let us do that. The Bible doesn't let us live that way. Jesus gives us instructions about real love. And what we find is real love is hard. Uh, many months ago, we were in the book of 1 Corinthians together, and we were there in chapter 13. And maybe you'll recall the Apostle Paul's description of love. First descriptor, love is patient. You're like, yeah, okay. Love is kind. Okay, yeah, right. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Oh, come on. Okay, it, keeps, it keeps getting harder as it goes. It, it's, it's, it's gritty. It's real. It's in the trenches of life. It's something that we have to uh, live out. And we're even told in other places in the Bible that when we don't, we're actually showing who we really are. 
You'll recall maybe in, in the book of 1 John, where the Apostle John addresses a certain kind of people. These are people who say, oh, I love God. I totally love God. Oh, but that person, I can't stand them. And, and John's point there is, if you say you hate your brother or sister, newsflash, you don't love God. So stop pretending that you do, is what he's saying. Because the, the, the horizontal here is actually the barometer or the indicator or the gauge for the quality of vertical love this way. And so when the Bible talks about love, it, it's hard. There's tough stuff it's dealing with. But perhaps there's no place that love is described in a harder way than Jesus' words in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and following. Because let's, let's face it, it's hard enough to love people you like, right? It's hard enough to love people you actually want to be around. But Jesus goes so far to say this, if you're really my disciples, if you're really following me, you are not only going to live a life of love, you are actually going to love your enemies. Wow. A guy named Ernest Gordon, he wrestled with this question of how could I ever love my enemies in a way that you and I probably never will. Because he was a prisoner of war. And he was held captive by the Imperial Japanese Army in an infamous Japanese work camp on the River Kwai. And the conditions were brutal. The conditions were so harsh that he was right on, on, on the verge of death. He didn't know if he was going to survive. Here's how he describes it. He says, I was headed for the death house. I was so ill that I didn't much care. I was hardly prepared for what I found there. The death house had been built at one of the lowest points of the camp. And the monsoon was on. And as a result, the floor of the hut was a sea of mud. And there were the smells, tropical ulcers eating into flesh and bone, latrines overflowed, unwashed men, unattended men, sick men, humanity gone sour, humanity rotting. The last shreds of my numbed sensibilities rebelled against my surroundings, against the bedbugs, the lice, the stenches, the, the sleeping platforms of the dying dead mates. The victory of corruption. This was the lowest level of life. And yet, in the midst of all of that, you know what happened to him? Not only did Gordon not die, but he actually came to know Jesus. And, and he and many other men in his camp came to faith in Christ. And they had learned to love each other, but they still found it impossible to love their enemies. Gordon puts it this way, quote, We had learned from the Gospels that Jesus had his enemies just as we had ours, but there was this difference. He loved his enemies. He prayed for them. Even as the nails were being hammered through his hands and feet, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We hated our enemies. We could see how wonderful it was that Jesus forgave in this way, yet for us to do the same seemed beyond our attainment. And, and let's face it, if we're honest, it is beyond our attainment, isn't it? And yet, that's what Jesus calls us to in his Sermon on the Plain. So I invite you to open to Luke 6, verses 27 and following, as I've said. Jesus has just called his disciples. He's actually given them his first lesson in what it means to follow him. If you were with us last week, he, he began unfolding this beautiful way in which a kingdom citizen, a citizen of God's kingdom is going to live. And there's a paradox to kingdom living. And, and he talked about blessed are those and woe to those. Or how rich and full is the life of the one who, we could say. Or how empty and poor is the life of the one who. The contrast there. And so he brought out how, how rich the poor and how poor the rich. Again, a paradox. How full the hungry, how empty the full. How happy the weeping, how mournful the laughing. How accepted the persecuted, how rejected the popular. And now his teaching shifts towards how kingdom citizens are relate, to relate to, to others. And it's a very striking description. So as this is the word of God, we want to honor that. Would you please stand and follow along as I read? Luke 
You'll find it on page 49, by the way, in the Bible's on the chair rack in front of you there. But here's what Jesus says. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. Let's pray. Lord, we, we ask that you would take these words and by your spirit at work, even now, that you would transform us from the inside. Lord, this, this call of, of, of actual real love given freely, generously to enemies is something beyond our ability, far beyond our ability. And yet, it is certainly a distinguishing mark, if not the distinguishing mark, of what it means to be your disciple, to follow you, to live out our lives as kingdom citizens. And so we pray you, you would, in this moment, challenge us, convict, encourage change us so that when we leave this place, we would walk in a different way, that we would emulate our Heavenly Father as those who love even our enemies. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the one who, who lived and died and rose again and lives now interceding for us before you, our Savior, our King. We ask these things in his name for your glory. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. We're, we were given the, the kind of the, the motive or why or, or the, 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 the drive to do these things that Jesus commands in the latter portion of this passage. If you'll look closely at, at verse 35 and 36, what does he say? Love your enemies. So he reiterates what he says in the beginning, that same command. But then he says, why? He says, it's because God himself, he himself is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So what he's saying is your heavenly father, he's like this. And if you're going to follow him as sons and daughters of him, emulate him. Follow his pattern. And, and so I, as I was just kind of thinking this through this week, like, you know, how, do we, how do we put this together? What, what, what is this love that God shows us? And I'll be honest, I've been having a hard time coming up with like a succinct way to put it. Why? Because God's love is, frankly, as we, as we sing at times, indescribable. Right? It is. He is. I mean, we need to imitate our Heavenly Father. So what we do is we need to learn to see things how He sees them, and then we need to learn how to act the way He acts. That's what Jesus is saying. And so that means we need to if we're going to see things the way he sees them and, and learn to act the way he acts, it means we need to learn to love the way he loves. And, and, and he loves with a, again, how do you put it? He loves with a, a merciful, compassionate, upside-down, otherworldly, deep, robust, unquenchable, unstoppable love. That's the love of the Father. And so if I was trying to take one term and kind of like, okay, well, what, what does that mean? Because let's face it, that does not fit into an outline, people, okay? I love that. The Bible says, you want to outline this? Try it. Boom! There's God's love. 
Give it a, give it a try, you know? I've been praying about it. I, th I think the, uh, a concise way to say it would be this. God's love is lavish. What's the word lavish mean? Well, it comes from an old French word that means deluge or torrent, and it refers to rain when you're talking about it that way. But, but it has the idea of this generous and extravagant thing. It's the idea of pouring something forth without restraint. And so we're going to kind of just ask this question if we're to emulate this kind of love from God. How does lavish love show in our daily lives? How do we see that played out? Now, if you're here today and you haven't come to Jesus, you've never received him or trusted in him, you can know this love today. It's simply by turning to him by faith, trusting him, saying, Lord, I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I have not kept your law. I've, I've missed the mark. I've overstepped the boundaries of, of what you've told me to do in terms of my, my life and the way I think and the way that I act. And I need your forgiveness. And as you turn to him by faith, we're told in the Bible that you receive from him as you trust him, as you rest in him, you are given a gift. It's his righteousness. And it's given to you uh, kind of like a white robe is the way the Bible describes it. And it covers your sin. And your sin is placed on Jesus on the cross. There's this beautiful exchange that happens as Jesus willingly takes your sin upon himself. And now you're free. You're free. You're, you're declared righteous by God. It's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't be moral enough. You can't be religious enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't read your Bible enough. You can't pray enough. You can't do any of those things to earn this thing. It's a gift from God received by faith. And then when that happens, you're then free. You're freed. Rather than having to, to labor or work in order to gain God's acceptance, you're now free to love God and love others. That's that lavish love from God. He gave his only son. That whoever would trust in him or believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. But for those who have turned to Christ and trust him. We need to live out this lavish love. So, so how does it look? Well, the first thing that Jesus would teach us here is this. There's the, there's the character of lavish love. We find that in verses 27 to 31. And, and really we see it's a heart of compassion for enemies. And it results in, in actions of grace toward those who, who hate you or mistreat you. You can see that progression here. Notice, love your enemies. That's, that's this... this uh, Agape. It's, it's a selfless love. It's a, it's, a, it's a love that sacrifices for the benefit of others. What does that mean? You're going to do good to those who hate you. Now, is Jesus talking about just someone that you don't get along with? You know, your neighbor's playing their music super loud. Or in our case, what's more likely is we are the ones playing the music way too loud. And our neighbor is mad at us. Okay. Either way. Is that what this is talking about? Well, certainly it can include some of those, what we would call just sort of normal daily kind of interactions with people. But really, Jesus has just told his followers what? You are going to be persecuted. Blessed are you when people hate you on account of me, is what Jesus says. So if we look at it in context, we would see this as being certainly the outflow for his disciples. Again, he's just, he's just called them to himself. And this is kind of like their first gathering where he's kind of giving them their pastoral internship. That's what this is. Okay, you ready? You, you, blessed are those who are poor and woe to the rich because they're empty. And he goes through all those paradoxes and now he's saying, okay, next thing. When you're dealing with other people, you're going to love your enemies. And so he's teaching them that. And there's this, there's this way in which there's a progression of, of loving enemies, doing good, blessing those who curse you. Notice those are opposites. I was just cursed by someone. Great, I'm going to bless them. Someone mistreats you, and then what do you respond with? I'm going to pray for you. I mean, this is a very, very counterintuitive, counter everything that, that we are like as people. And yet it's a beautiful supernatural display of what God's doing. And he's calling us to do what he's already done. Think about this. What did God do with us when we were his enemies he loved us. When we hated him, what did he do? He did good 
to us. When we cursed him, what did he do? He blessed us. When we, when we mistreated him, what did he do? He prayed for us. And that's where we find the only place any of this actually makes sense. It's at the foot of Calvary. He's being nailed to the cross. And what is he doing? Praying. Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How else can we love our enemies? Well, Jesus gets very practical. To one who strikes on the cheek, offer the other cheek. And, and here's the thing. Jesus is not teaching here... Um, if someone, you know, I get this question from time to time. Well, if someone comes into my house and wants to harm my family, am I supposed to just let them do that? Or is this arguing for some form of pacifism? Or even worse yet, if someone's in an abusive relationship, if there's a marriage, let's say, and it isn't always the case, but let's just say uh, it's the husband that is physically harming the wife. Is she supposed to just stay there? Because this, this passage says, turn the other cheek. The answer is emphatically no, 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 no. That's not what this is talking about. And so... Jesus is not teaching to allow evil to have its way. If anything, we have a God-given responsibility to care for the innocent around us. And certainly, if there's physical violence happening in a home, we're called by God to expose that, to bring the authorities into that. The most loving thing to do for the abuser is that they go to jail. That is really loving. They need to face consequences for what they're doing. And we need to be caring enough to confront those things as well and care for if there's children involved especially. So please, let's not misunderstand or twist this out of, out of shape. These are people who are being persecuted for their faith. From the context, we can see that. It's also culturally in those days when someone did strike someone's cheek, it was more of an insult than it was an act of violence. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of like, um, do you remember, do you ever see those movies where they got the swashbuckling and the swords and... You know, the one guy takes the glove and he goes, I challenge you to a duel. Right? It's that kind of thing. We don't do that anymore, and I'm glad. But that was a thing, you know? And so it's an insult. And so the idea would be, the, the, in the context here, certainly, it, this is a context in which Jesus is saying, you're going to be persecuted for me. Uh, there's going to be opposition coming from religious leaders, there's a way in which there's going to be public rejection from the synagogue. There's, there's going to be a misuse of authority. Uh, there's going to be ostracization that's going to come about your business. You're going to lose that. Your family is going to reject you. The culture is going to kick you out. But you're going to love them. And so the, the, the point would be we are to be willing to suffer humiliation and rejection for Jesus. And we are, should be willing to do that without retaliating or, or without taking revenge. We're to follow Jesus in that way. Think of what 1 Peter says in chapter 2. And it says, when he, Jesus, was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. So think about it. Do, do you face attacks regularly? Certainly our, our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, they face this in a very tangible way. Again, there are more places right now where if you are a professing Christian, you are in danger of being thrown in jail or tortured or killed. So doing what we're doing right now would be a very physically dangerous thing. We have brothers and sisters that are meeting around the world in secret right now because of that very thing. But, but I think in this time, we do also face various attacks they come from a lot of different places. Maybe it's, maybe it's someone at work. Again, maybe it's, maybe it's a neighbor. Uh, maybe it's a, a, a friend. You know, maybe they're pressuring you. Like, you know what? You need to compromise that commitment to Christ. That's ridiculous. Or, or maybe there's someone who's, who's making snide remarks about you because of your involvement, maybe, in, in, in the church community. Or, or maybe there's family members who are trying to, to discourage you from walking in a way that's obeying Jesus. Those are forms of opposition. But, but whatever that would be, Christ is calling us in this 
to reach out to open-handedly before our enemies and say, you might give all these things at me, to me, against me, and yet I want you to know I am open for you. I am ready to embrace you. Even if it means I get hurt again. And so Jesus talks about this this way of, of, of loving enemies and loving others. And he goes from, from the loss of, of maybe some personal comfort to actually losing property, right? He talks about the one who would uh, take away your coat. And he's saying, give him your shirt too. Now, is he, is, he, is he saying to you, deliberately go to downtown Oakland, put some really expensive musical gear in your trunk and pop the hood and just go to sleep or something? No, he's not saying that. But what he is saying is, I want to be generous with people. Even generous to the point of possibly being uh, deceived or someone doing something uh, that would be going above and beyond what I would desire to typically give. I, I want to be generous and I want to be able to, um, if someone's mistreating me in that, to not cling to what's mine as mine, but instead to release it for the sake of the gospel. He wants us to have a giving spirit that's really more concerned about the needs of other people than the protection of our own property. And so at that, at that time, the cloak, typically most people had an outer cloak and then they would have a, an inner cloak or a garment or a shirt. And so... He's saying, look, you're not clinging to these things for your significance. You're not holding on to these things for your protection, but you're desiring to, to let go of it and to give. And so I think a question we need to ask is, you know, what is Jesus calling us to give? Is, has someone taken something from you maybe that Jesus is saying, hey, let go of it. Let it go. Because I think so many of us, it's easy for us, to, especially these days, this is like the day of the scam, isn't it? It's like the day of the scam, the era of the scam. I can't even take a phone call at home anymore without going, it's probably a scam call. This, this might shock some of you, but uh, years ago, the phone would ring. Guess who it was? It was probably a friend. It's probably someone you knew. Now we just use our landline as kind of like the big vat to take all the sales calls. Yeah. There's a way in which we're being scammed and so we're against falling for that, but it's also built into our hearts, I think, a suspicion of others. And, and so we want to be wise about that. Now I've got to tell you, I think for all of us personally, this is really hard, isn't it? It's hard. I mean, Jesus goes on to say, give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what's yours, don't demand it back. Okay, well, how does that work for us? You know, sometimes I, I, I've had different seasons in my life. So I think, I think when I was, you know, a lot younger, it was kind of like if someone came up and they had a need, I was pretty much like, here, take it, take it. And then I kind of went through my hyper, hyper skeptical phase where I was like, you're in need? Eh, prove it to me. You know? Because I'm not buying it. Because I've been, I've been, I'd been burned before, quote unquote, right? I'd been burned. And see, that's the problem. So what? Jesus is saying here, so what if I'm burned? I want to be open to giving. Now, there are elements of wisdom in this, though. For example, if someone's coming up and saying, give me, you know, this much cash, let's say, on the street. And there's literally a dealer, like, a half block away, because you saw them. And you can tell by the status of this person that they are going to be taking that. And it, okay, at that point, is it loving to give it to them? Right? You've got to wrestle through that. I'm not going to answer that for you. I think there's also a place for all of us to wrestle with our conscience in this. I'm not giving it to them. Because I don't want to contribute to that. Uh, however, there are other times when I've, I've had people ask for something. And I, again, I'm praying in that moment, Lord, show me what you want me to do. Help me to know. Help me to be sensitive to your spirit in the midst of that moment of how I'm to respond. And, and there's been help given when I think skepticism would have ruled. And, and you know what? That, that's happened for us as a church family as well. I love our, I'm so grateful for our deacons. Our deacons care for people who come up the hill for help or call in for help on a regular basis. Your contributions to the deacons fund to, to help people who are in need, that's used constantly. 
And we've had situations before where someone would call and uh, initially they're asking for, you know, pa a pastoral, you know, visit and, and prayer. Uh, and so I, I've been involved in that. And then I've kind of, some needs came up from that. And, and uh, it seems like, you know what? I don't know. I'm not sure if this person's telling the truth or not. And you know, the disposition of, of, of our deacons is, is so beautifully balanced in this way, I think. It's sort of like we want, we want to be giving and we want to be wise. And so they're navigating those situations all the time. And, and I can say, you know, just this past week, I had the joy of being a part of, of helping someone get back home who had a terminal illness and they were facing some very, very difficult trials. They were a brand new believer and we were able to encourage them. And, and again, you're a part of that. But so, so how, how do we wrestle through these things? It's, it's one of those things where we need wisdom and we need to ask God to show us that wisdom. And, uh, and we want to make sure that, 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 again, we're not so jaded that we're not going to help anybody, but we're not so gullible that we're just sort of not dis discerning the actual need of the moment. And we need, we need wisdom from the Lord. You know, I think uh, Jesus says, you know, in your dealings, be wise as serpents, innocent as doves, right? That's how we're, we're trying to navigate that. And so all of us need to do, do those things. I know of a young lady, I, th I think her approach is the best. She's a college student. And I was just, I just heard about this recently. She literally every day before she leaves, she packs an extra lunch and she prays. And she says, Lord, whoever I'm going to run into today, may this lunch bless them. And she, she kind of makes, you know how we do the Hope 680 thing together as a church? And by the way, that'll be coming up in the next months or so. You'll know about that soon. But, but we, what we do is we get together as a church family. We make lunches. And inside the lunch, typically there's a tract or something describing, um, you know, the gospel for people who need it. And then uh, the, uh, the Hope 680 team goes out in, in Concord and underneath the, the off-ramps and other places and, and, and shares that food and shares the gospel. Well, what she's doing is she's making those blessing bags for herself before she leaves. I mean, she's making herself lunch. She's like, I might as well make two. And she's prepared that way. And regularly, she's able to, to when someone comes up and is in need, she's able to bless them with that very tangibly. And so we need to be prepared for that. And, uh, and I think, uh, you know, verse 30 is one of those things where we need to very much go before God and go, Lord, show me. Show me how, how to care for others in this way. Um, but, but in this situation, this is even an enemy <laughs> who would come to you and ask you. So now it's that coworker, that neighbor, that family member, they're in need. Are you going to help them? Or is that resentment still there and you're like, no way. You want my help? Well, you should have thought of that before you. Or instead, is there an openness to go, Lord, help me to be a picture of you. Of being one who, who loves those who are ungrateful those who have committed evil against me. This, is, this isn't washing away the fact that they actually did do evil to you. It's, yes, that happened, and yet I want to be used by you, and I want to live in this way that reflects that I'm yours. So these are very clear indicators of whether or not we really understand the gospel. Verse 31, treat others the way you want them to treat you. There it is, the golden rule, right? We've all heard that one. Of course, it's converted these days. It's really treat others the way they have treated you. That's how we typically live that out, right? And it's like, no, that's not it. How would I want to be treated? Lord, help me to live that way. And so again, do I really grasp the gospel? Am I walking as a kingdom citizen? If so, I'm going to, to live out this, this character of lavish love. But then Jesus moves on to describe not only the, the character of lavish love, but also the logic of lavish love. And we find that in verses 32 through 34. And basically all these start with a conditional clause, right? If this, then. And each one, it's, so he's saying, look, let's think about this for a second. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Everyone does that. Everyone loves that way. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that? So it's still all about you. You realize that, right? It's like, well, I'm going to love you because you love me. I'm going to do good to you because you've done good to me. 
And then even the last one in verse 34, I'm going to lend to you. Why? Because I'm going to get something back. And so Jesus is saying, look, that is not the logic of the kingdom of heaven. That is not the logic of, of this lavish love. No, instead, we need to love because we've first been loved by God. And even here, when, when Jesus describes the kindness of God, or in verse 36, the mercy of God, that's what fuels this kind of lavish love. Romans 12 talks about that too. Uh, as a matter of fact, go ahead and flip over there if you would. Romans chapter 12. We find this very same depiction. Paul has just described the beauties of the gospel. And he's talked about the fact that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And he's gone on to say that the, the irreligious, the people who do not follow God, they're in big trouble because they've, they've substituted the things in the creation for the creator. And they've given themselves over to all kinds of wickedness. And God's coming in wrath. And then chapter 2 says, but the religious are just as, in just as much trouble as the irreligious. And so he's saying, if you're religious, there's no hope for you there. Because whatever moral standard you set up, you violate it. And then by the time he gets to chapter 3, he says, all of us have sinned. And all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And then he goes on to describe the beauties of the gospel. From the time of Abraham, right? Abraham believed God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he says, so now, because you've come to Jesus because you've been united to Christ, consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You're going to live in a different way. Not because you are, again, more religious or moral. No, because you've been transformed from the inside because you're now connected intimately to Jesus. And because of that, your life is now a life of love. And he goes on to talk about um, in chapter 7, the fact that we still struggle with indwelling sin. But in chapter 8, we're actually more than conquerors because of Christ. And then he goes on to describe what's going to happen with, with the people of Israel and how God still has a plan for Israel. And then by the time he gets to chapter 11 at the end, he just proclaims praise. Oh, the depths of the wisdom and the riches of God. He's blown away. He erupts in song. And then we get to chapter 12, and he begins with this. Therefore, because of everything I've just said, I urge you, by the mercies of God, to do what? Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. In other words, this sacrificial living, this life that isn't on you, the, the living sacrifice, by the way, it would be a contradiction to those who heard it because every sacrifice they ever saw it was dead, right? But this is a living sacrifice. You're living this way. And you're not conformed to this world. You're transformed by the renewing of your mind. But notice, again, it all comes about because you understand God's mercy. God's mercy has so gripped you. By the mercies of God, I urge you to do this. And in the same way, Jesus here is saying, if you go back now to Luke 6, verse 36, be merciful just as your heavenly Father is merciful. There it is. That is the logic of lavish love. Only God's mercy and only our apprehension of God's mercy will activate this otherworldly love inside of us. So, a question to ask. Are you someone who's growing in lavish love for other people? And if the answer to that question is no, the follow-up question would be, do you know the mercies of God towards you? Have you really come to the place of seeing that? Are you stunned by God's mercies towards you? Are you blown away? Are you amazed by God's mercy toward a wicked world? If so, then you too will grow and become one who is increasingly loving. Even loving towards your enemies. But if you refuse to love those who have offended you, if you refuse to love those who have hurt you, the question would be, do you know God's mercy yourself at all? We need to ask that question. So how, how does lavish love show in our daily lives? It, 
Jesus shows us the character of lavish love, the logic of lavish love, and we see thirdly, the reward of lavish love. It's, it's what Jesus promises. In verse 35, he reiterates, love your enemies. He says it again, do good and lend, expect nothing in return. And notice your reward will be great. What's he talking about? He's talking about when he comes back, when he returns. This is a world broken by sin. This is not our home. We're not going to find our comfort here. Let's not seek it here. But there's a new heavens and a new earth coming. There's, there's, there's this return of Jesus. And what's going to happen then is all things will be made right. All things will be made new. And at that point, there is this reward that comes from him. And, and we've talked about this many times before, but it's worth reiterating. You know, the question is, are you living, as, as one writer put it, for the dot, the here and now, this or are you living for the line of eternity? What's, what's, what's happening? So oftentimes we're caught up in the here, this little dot, like, oh man, this has got to happen. I've got to get that together. My, my career's got to go this way. My relationships have to go this way. My, my bank account has to go this way. My health has to go this way. And if not, oh no. And we live for this when in fact there's an eternity of all people being in one of two places, either with the Lord in eternal blessing or apart from God suffering eternal punishment. That kind of frames this. It doesn't mean that this little dot doesn't matter. It matters. It's important. But it's so often not important in the ways that we think. I think it's kind of like, you know, kids. So, so, so little kids, isn't it amazing the things that kids think are, you know, the most important thing in the world when in fact, as they grow, they start to see those things aren't everything after all. You know, that, that, that happens a lot. So for me, um, when I was a kid, everything was based on my, the goodness of my life when I was in the fourth grade was did I get to watch morning cartoons on Saturday? That was life, baby. That was it. As a matter of fact, my brother recently shared a story with me. Uh, apparently, there was a time when we were younger, and my, our parents said to us, you can't watch that show anymore. You can't. Because this and this and this isn't happening in your life. And now, I didn't recall this at all, but I, and my brother's five years younger than me, so he remembered this. It was a very formative moment for him, apparently. Because what I said was, you know what? I understand what you're saying. I've had it. Again, I'm in fourth grade. I'm the fourth grade kid that looked at I, I've had it. I'm, we're done. And so I say to my brother, we're out of here. We're leaving. <laughs> we are gone. We are so gone. And so we took, apparently we packed bags, you know, we pack bags up. I think my brother's like, you know, three, four years old, whatever. Uh, we lived on train tracks. We didn't live on the train tracks, sorry. Our, our house was directly adjacent to train tracks and went down the center of the street. Uh, Chandler Boulevard there in Burbank. And so we packed things up as best we could as kids, kind of put the knapsack over the shoulder, put the leash on our dog, Chip. We had a little Scottish Terrier named Chip. <laughs> And it was me, Tom, and Chip walking down the tracks, just like, we're gone. And, and, and my brother's kind of going, are we really doing this? I'm like, they said we couldn't watch cartoons. Are you crazy? I'm not going to live like this. I have to live here. Hello, what? You know, no. And so we're just kind of like walking down the, you know, and we got, you know, and, then, and then I think we got like maybe two blocks down the street. I think my dad was like, okay, see you later. <laughs> Which is probably a good move on dad's part. Like, yeah, all right, well, love you guys. I, you know, I get it, you know. We got about two, two blocks down, and then we're just like, I kind of look at them like, this isn't going to work. <laughs> and so we, we walked back. Now, I mean, to look back on that now, it's like, you know, yes, that was everything. Is it, though? And, and, and don't we do the same thing with life sometimes, right? Don't, don't, don't we do that? This thing, whatever it is, Really, it's an idol of the heart. I was offended by you. You know, again, again, your problem isn't just that you offended anybody. You offended me. And so now you're going to pay. That is 
what the world teaches. That is not what Jesus teaches. And, and, and we dare not live for the dot and miss out on the real point, which is that Jesus is coming back. So lavish love. Again, Jesus shows us the character of lavish love, the, the logic of lavish love, the reward of lavish love. And lastly, he shows us the motive of lavish love. And again, we've already looked at this. Verses 35 and 36, we want to, Jesus says, you will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. What does it mean? We're sons and daughters of the King. And so we want to emulate him. We want to live like him. That's what sons and daughters want to do. And maybe, and maybe it's, yeah, but you don't understand what they did to me. Yeah, that's true. That's true, but, but God does even more than you do. This is really describing common grace. You realize that when he says that he's, he's kind to ungrateful and evil people? Um, the reality is God allows the rain to fall, the sun to rise and set, the seasons to come and go. There's the blessing of food and friendship and family and relationships. There's times of joy. Those are given to all people. Even to people who hate God, reject God, spurn his name, and spit on his son. That's how loving God is and gracious he is. And we're told that day-to-day -day pours forth speech and night-to-night -night reveals knowledge. The very creation itself declares the glory of God and calls all people to repentance. That's God's heart. He desires that none perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. And the invitation is open to all people. Turn to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Be saved. And so even as we have all these blessings, you know, and many would say, well, that, that, those things, we can explain all that by science. You know, sun, rising, setting. You know, there's a guy who wrote a book about that. I don't, I don't need God. No, the reality is all those things, the intricacy of that creation, the artistry that we see in every sunset, the, the, the reality of, of the, the created order established by God is something that calls us to go, wait a minute, who put that in place? And so as God gives to all people all these elements of common grace, we want to be instruments of grace too. So in closing, who, who are your enemies? Who, who do you hate Maybe you have political enemies. Maybe you have professional enemies. Maybe you have personal enemies. We all have them. You know, whatever it would be, we need to recognize that Jesus is calling us to love them. There was a situation many, many years ago in ministry for me, and there was a, a moment where there were two brothers in, in, in a congregation, and, and there was actually... Um, a legal proceeding about to happen between them. And the Bible tells us clearly we are not to bring brothers or sisters into, into court. And, and, and this one man had been deeply wronged, deeply hurt by this other person. And, uh, and, and they, they heard the word brought forward and the spirit worked in such a way that their heart was quickened made awake, made, made, made alive to the reality that they were harboring this bitterness toward a brother. And you know what they did? They dropped the whole thing. This is, a, this is the distinguishing mark of a follower of Jesus. Loving enemies. You know, eventually Ernest Gordon did actually learn how to show this kind of love to his enemies, the Japanese, after the war ended. 
Uh, see, what happened is Gordon and the other POWs, they were actually released and, and they were traveling through Asia by train, making their way to Britain. And as they did so, they, they ended up in a rail yard right next to a train of, of wounded Japanese soldiers. And, uh, and, and, and Gordon just describes their pitiful condition like this. He says, quote, they were in a shocking state. I've never seen men filthier. Their uniforms were encrusted with mud, blood, and excrement. Their wounds sorely inflamed and full of pus, crawled with maggots. The wounded men looked at us forlornly as they sat with their hands resting against the carriages, waiting fatalistically for death. They were the refuse of war. There was nowhere to go. There was no one to care for them. These were the enemy. And then... Gordon tells how some other soldiers and he responded when they saw that. Quote, without a word, most of the officers in my section unbuckled their packs, took out part of their ration and a bag or two, and with water canteens in their hands, went over to the Japanese train to help them. We knelt by the side of the enemy to give them food and water, to clean and bind up their wounds, to smile and say a kind word. And... Of course, not everybody was happy with this. There was another officer not far away who just basically shouted at these guys, don't you guys understand? This is the enemy. You are fools. And of course, the officers did realize it. They knew exactly who they were caring for. But they also understood that Jesus had called them to love them, those enemies, and to do good to them. How do they learn to love like that? In the same way we need to learn to love like that, at the foot of the cross. They learn to give this, give this kind of love because Jesus showed them how. And he shows us how to do the same. Let's pray. Lord, we, we pray that you would work in us in this way that's above and beyond us. That we would follow you, that we would emulate our Father in heaven who is merciful and generous to the ungrateful and the evil. May we follow you in this and may we be a light and a beacon in this broken, dark world that others would come to know you as well. We ask that you would accomplish this in the name of Jesus, our King, our Savior, the risen one. Amen.